Look at this watch. See it move. Watch it. You have seen nothing. You know nothing. Repeat after me. I have seen nothing. I know nothing. I have seen nothing. I knows nothing. I don't even know my name. I don't even know my name. I am dead. Um, I is. Repeat. I am dead. I am dead. I am dead. I have returned to the land of the living. I am a zombie. 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 Get over there where you belong. Yes, sir. Move over, boys. I'm one of the gang now. Zombies are weird. Like, you think you know what a zombie is. When I say the word zombie, some mental image comes into your head. But the more you try to parse through the details of what makes a zombie a zombie, the harder it is to really explain what it is, let alone what it means. Okay, for example, a zombie is a corpse that comes back to life and walks around, right? Yeah, of course. But also, a zombie is the result of some sort of infection that spreads around and makes people violent and mindless, right? Well, also, yeah. Or, okay, here's another question. Do zombies run? Well, sometimes. Depends on who you ask. Is Frankenstein's monster a zombie? Well, no. Maybe. Kind of. In fact, the deeper you get into the history of zombie movies, the more and more variations there are, until at some point it becomes hard to even define what the hell a zombie is in the first place. In general, there's really only two vague concepts that are almost always present in a zombie. One, they're mindless. They lack any sort of agency. They just do things, seemingly without any rational thought guiding them. Two, they're dead. Now, what exactly dead means changes based off the context, but in some way, they're dead. Now, that's all pretty vague, but that's also what makes zombies really interesting. See, zombies are kind of an absence. They're a vague outline of a monster that results from a human losing agency and reason and being dead. Everything else is contingent. All the other details are filled in with the anxieties and fears from different places and times, and they're all baked into the zombies we see in films today. When you follow the genealogy of zombies in films, what you get is a sort of history of fear. A history of ways people have been afraid of losing agency, or dying, or being dead, or something is dead and it comes back and we're scared of it, Zombies don't have a single fixed meaning. They have a lot of meanings. And in order to explore those meanings, we're going to have to go back to the beginning.
There have been a lot of different stories about bringing corpses back from the dead or defeating death in some way, and you can point to all of them as a source for zombies. But the real birthplace of the modern zombie that you see in films is Haiti. Haiti is a country that gets forgotten a lot, kind of intentionally. In general, Haiti was and is a nation with world historical significance because, well, it was the first successful slave revolution. In 1791, the slaves on the French colony of Saint-Domingue brutally killed their masters and fought for several grueling decades for independence, even defeating Napoleon's troops. It was the worst nightmare for the colonial powers. And Haiti remained something of a pariah for, well, well, it's still kind of a pariah. There's a long history here of debt and cruelty exasperated by Western powers that's really worth looking into if you don't know much about it, but suffice it to say, Haiti was really scary to colonial empires. And then in 1915, an angry mob killed the new president in Haiti for reasons related to that whole long history about debt that we're glossing over, and the U.S. decided to intervene. That's right. The U.S. invaded and occupied Haiti until 1934. Almost 20 years. And it's an occupation that's almost completely forgotten, despite the fact that it was brutal and unpopular. During the occupation, U.S. soldiers, bureaucrats, and journalists were all exposed to Haitian folklore and voodoo, or voodoo, if you hate French. Reports of various oddities and folk beliefs began to trickle over into the U.S. And in 1929, the adventurer, occultist, and one-time cannibal, William Seabrook, published The Magic Island, a book about all the magic and spooky things he saw in Haiti. It's a pretty racist book. So naturally, it had a massive impact on American pop culture and introduced the public to the zombie. This is how Seabrook described it. A soulless human corpse, still dead, but taken from the grave and endowed by sorcery with the mechanical semblance of life. Three years later, Here it is, the first real zombie film. Now, let's go ahead and see our zombie. Oh. Yeah, so it's going to take a bit here. Y you see, zombies are distinctly linked to voodoo at this time. They're associated with black magic and often some sort of sorcerer who controls the zombie. So the, the aspect of them being dead, undead creatures wasn't center stage. It was still there, but the main focus, the main horror, was the idea of being reduced to a mechanical semblance of life with no agency, no will, just obedience. Like a slave. Amy Willens, a journalist who spent several decades in Haiti, described the connection like this. The only escape from the sugar plantations was death which was seen as a return to Africa, or Languine, literally Guinea, or West Africa. This is the phrase in Haitian Creole that even now means heaven. The plantation meant a life in servitude. Languine meant freedom. Death was feared, but also wished for. Not surprisingly, suicide was a frequent recourse of the slaves. 
Suicide was the slave's only way to take control over his or her own body. She goes on, And yet the fear of becoming a zombie might stop them from doing so. The zombie is a dead person who cannot get across to Langane. The final rest in green, leafy, heavenly Africa, with no sugarcane to cut and no master to appease or serve, is unavailable to the zombie. To become a zombie was the slave's worst nightmare. To be dead and still a slave. An eternal field hand. It is thought that slave drivers on the plantation, who are usually slaves themselves and sometimes voodoo priests, used this fear of zombification to keep recalcitrant slaves in order and to warn those who were despondent not to go too far. In White Zombie, written for a mostly white American audience, the fear is, in part, the reversal here. See, Bella Lugosi's character, who learns dark magic, uses this kind of zombification on a white woman in order to make her his bride. In Jennifer Fay's fantastic essay, Dead Subjectivity, White Zombie, Black Baghdad, she argues that zombies in the American cultural unconscious have a lot to tell us about the way we remember colonial rule and the rise of American empire. She argues that white zombie was always racialized, which is a bit obvious. I mean, the film has white in the title, but it was even more racialized than that, especially in its marketing. Ads talked about how the story was based off personal observations by Americans in Haiti who witnessed individuals dug from their graves and put to work as slaves. It had a flavor of Orientalism. Seabrook himself was inspired by the Arabian Nights and wrote his first travel narrative, Adventures in Arabia, a year before going to Haiti. In a weird way, Haiti was part of the Orient, part of the exotic East in the American imagination. And this is what the advertising leaned into. Exhibitors were encouraged to hire black actors to beat drums near the theater while adorned in, quote, tropical attire, screaming and trying their best to recreate the rhythms in the beginning of the film. Displays inside the theater would show off supposed voodoo artifacts, including handcuffs and magic wands that suggested that maybe one of these Haitians may make a white zombie of their own. In The Magic Island, Seabrook spends the first half exploring the interior regions of Haiti, witnessing the voodoo practiced in small village contexts. Now, while he's definitely racist and definitely demeaning toward them, he's also very sympathetic to their religious practices. So a switch happens when Seabrook returns to Port-au-Prince, which is more Americanized and has the absolutely not at all racist Haitian American Sugar Company, or Hasco. Here in Port-au-Prince is where Seabrook's claimed that voodoo was being put to evil use. Zombies were being raised from the dead as factory workers. Now to Faye, the circulation of zombie stories in the U.S. is, in some sense, an admission and denial that U.S. policy in Haiti resurrected a colonial slave economy through forced labor. And this plays out in White Zombie, when it's revealed that Bella Lugosi's character has staffed his sugar mill with zombies. Unlike, however, Seabrook's account, these workers aren't just Haitians, but white Europeans as well. The dehumanization and exploitation doled out by colonial powers and financial interests were changing. 
keep in mind that this film came out in 1932, in the middle of the Great Depression, when American financial interests and capital seemed to be screwing over even those in the Imperial Corps. Not to mention, the female zombie Madeline is being zombified primarily to be a spouse without any sexual agency. A bit of a gesture toward a sort of gendered exploitation, maybe even sexual exploitation. See, White Zombie takes folklore that sprang up among enslaved people in colonial contexts and begins to apply it to other forms of exploitation or dehumanization. In part, the metaphor was able to stretch like this because of the Orientalism. For instance, in the sequel to White Zombie, Revolt of the Zombies, the voodoo zombie magic is actually Asian magic, and the characters discover that Angkor Wat was built by ancient zombie slaves and an evil white count has discovered how to create zombie laborers out of the locals using this magic. It's a relentless slog of a movie, but it has a scene at the end that could be powerful if it was in a different movie. At one point, the spell is broken and the zombies turn on the white colonial master and suddenly have a small revolution. Ironically, through its Orientalism, the zombie metaphor began to refer to any formerly colonized region that had been dehumanized and subjugated by white Europeans. This also lined up with a growing interest in decolonization. In 1938, C.L.R. James published his classic history of the Haitian Revolution, The Black Jacobins. It's an openly celebratory book about the Haitian Revolution and represents a slow rise in academic interest about decolonization. In 1941, the zombie genre returned to Haiti explicitly in an absolutely fantastic film called I Walked with a Zombie. In this film, the way colonialism haunts Haiti is a lot more explicit. And if there's any movie from this period of zombies that I genuinely recommend you look up and watch, it's I Walked with a Zombie. And the enormous boat brought the long-ago fathers and the long-ago mothers of us all chained to the bottom of the boat. They brought you to a beautiful place, didn't they? If you say, miss, if you say. Let's go back to Europe real quick. In 1933, a year after the release of White Zombie, the Reichstag was set on fire in Germany and Hitler passed the Enabling Act, which made him de facto dictator. The next year, he would begin to use the title Fuhrer. So fascism was in the air. And with fascism and World War II came the fear of totalitarianism. The fear of dehumanizing the masses and turning them into cogs and a military machine. And in 1941 and 1943, we get King of the Zombies and Revenge of the Zombies. They both reflect this shift. King of the Zombies is about three travelers who end up stranded on an island in the Caribbean after a plane crash. They end up staying with an evil doctor and eventually find out that he is experimenting with voodoo to create zombies. The evil doctor is, of course, working with foreign spies, i.e. the Nazis. An almost identical plot with identical characters is reused in Revenge of the Zombies. However, it makes the doctor explicitly German, and his zombie magic is being used to create an army for the Nazis. I am prepared to supply my country with a new army. Against an army of zombies, no armies could stand. 
I even blown half to bits. Undaunted by fire and gas, zombies would fight on so long as the brain cells which receive and execute commands still remained intact. Now, neither of these are particularly good movies. I'd actually go so far as to say they're bad movies. But they do show the way that zombies, even from the get-go, are a malleable sort of metaphor. And they can be about whatever the current fear is. Of course, the war eventually ended and Nazism was mostly defeated. And with the end of the war came a new fear. The bomb. In the period following the war, the combination of horror and fascination with scientific progress epitomized in nuclear weapons became the focus. The 1950s saw an explosion of science fiction movies and a decline in the more gothic style of horror. The concept of the zombie lingered for a little longer in these science fiction films. In 1955's Creature with the Atom Brain, we get a former Nazi scientist who wants to make an army of the dead and is using a zombifying technology to commit crimes. And in 1959's Teenage Zombies, we have a scientist using gas to turn people into mind-controlled slaves. This is basically the trope at this point. An evil person using dark magic or mad scientists enslaves people and either tries to get a bride out of it or an army of laborers or soldiers. By the late 1950s and early 1960s, these tropes had been established enough that they were making movies about 50s teenagers OG gollying their way through a story of enslavement. The genre was drying up, and it was entering into self-parody. It needed something new to inject some terror into the mix. It needed new fears to tap into. It needed... When you imagine the first true genre-defining zombie film of the 1960s, you're probably imagining The Last Man on Earth from 1964. This is really the first gesture toward the zombie apocalypse, except the zombies are vampires. Stop, please. Stop it, please. Nowadays, we throw around the term zombie apocalypse a lot. What would you do in the zombie apocalypse? Who would you want there with you? How much canned food and weaponry would you need? It's the easiest way to start a conversation about a survivalist impulse that a lot of us have. The zombie apocalypse, rather than the simple zombie film, is an innovation we get in the 1960s. I think it's useful to think of it as the merging of two different genres. Up until the 1960s, you have zombie movies, like we've been discussing, and then you have apocalypse movies, or end times movies. Movies like 1955's Day the World Ended, or 1936's Things to Come. These movies started to become more popular in the 1950s with fear around nuclear weapons rising steadily. In 1954, the author Richard Matheson decided to combine gothic horror elements with this post-apocalyptic imagery in his novel I Am Legend. He took vampires and gave them a natural, material, non-supernatural explanation. They were a virus. It was the germ theory of vampirism. And it's no coincidence that the book was written at the tail end of the worst polio outbreak the U.S. had seen. According to Matheson, the book was the product of an anxious, artistic mind working in an anxious cultural climate. 
But if you thought the 1950s were an anxious cultural climate, check out the fucking 1960s. This is the context where the British company Hammer Film Productions purchased the rights to I Am Legend. However, the film idea was too dark for British censors, and they eventually sold the project to Robert Lippert, who had always wanted to make a post-apocalyptic Last Man on Earth movie, and decided to use this film as an excuse to do it. The result was a film that Matheson was really dissatisfied with. Despite writing chunks of it and helping the adaptation process, he eventually wanted his name pulled from the project. And audiences didn't really like it much either. The film eventually fell into the public domain and was kind of forgotten. Luckily, it has since had a reappraisal and is kind of considered a pretty good movie, which I think is is fair because it is a pretty good movie. Aside from just giving us the visuals of a devastated, lonely cityscape occupied by the undead, I Am Legend and Last Man on Earth give us a really interesting ending. Eventually, Price's character Robert Morgan discovers that there are more human vampires out there who had a vaccine that allowed them to live their lives without being undead, diseased, and incapable of thinking. These vampires planned to rebuild society anew, create a sort of society of vampires. When Morgan had gone out vampire hunting throughout the film, he wasn't just killing the undead, he was also killing the vaccinated vampires. Morgan is eventually killed by the vampires, and as he dies, he declares that he was the last man. man. The last man. Mankind had been defeated, and something new had come to take its place. It was a revolution. Your new society sounds charming. The beginning of any society is never charming or gentle. And you pretended to be shocked at my violence. Now, I'm not going to act like the ending was intended to be optimistic. We are supposed to be horrified at the vampire apocalypse and the replacement of our world with a new vampire world. But also, what's the other option? In the film, Morgan discovers a way to actually cure vampirism, and the vampires are just choosing not to do it. But in the book, there's no cure. They have to make this new society, or else they all die. Ultimately, Last Man on Earth is still kind of a product of the 1950s. It is a bit more violence and a bit of 1960s imagery, but it comes from those old science fiction fears. See, it had all the ingredients for a zombie apocalypse film, but it was missing something. Hammer Film Productions eventually did produce a zombie film in 1966, The Plague of the Zombies, which is a really good film, but ultimately just more Victorian-style gothic horror about the undead. It's got red blood, though, so that's cool. But it would take until 1968 for all of the pieces of a zombie apocalypse film to finally be put together. Yes, finally, let's talk about Night of the Living Dead. It's the zombie movie of the 1960s. They're coming for you, Barbara. It is a distinctly 60s film at this point. It's got grit to it. It's got violence. It's got cannibalistic zombies and a bleak worldview that really lines everything up. 
Even though the zombie apocalypse takes place on a small scale in the film, it definitely feels like the world is beginning to fall apart. It also has a famously political ending. Now, Romero has stated it was an accident of casting that the final character, Ben, was black. And I believe him, but damn did that choice give us a brutal ending. Having successfully survived the worst night of his life trapped inside a house fighting off the onslaught of zombies, Ben wakes up in the basement to the sound of gunfire. He's saved. Outside is a posse of armed men and police officers killing the zombies off and preparing to burn their corpses. As Ben arrives upstairs to greet his liberators, however, he's shocked. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay. Now, the script didn't intend it, and there is no line saying it, but we all think it when we watch it. They just shot him because he's black. And you, would, you can excuse them and say they just thought Ben was a zombie. That's a reading you can have. But it's really hard in 1968 not to see this as an incredibly political ending. And it gives us a lot of weird emotions. Because on the one hand, the zombie apocalypse is bad, obviously. But when order gets restored, we get a brutal reminder that the order that existed before the zombie apocalypse... Well, it wasn't a very good order. It was an oppressive one. It was a boot on the throat of so many black Americans. It was young men being drafted to war. 1968 is the year MLK was assassinated. Draft cards were being burned. Massive protests were breaking out seemingly everywhere. The stuff that had been repressed to maintain the old order had broken loose. So whose side are you on? The zombies or the lynch mob? The vampires are the man who would rather see everyone die than create a society for vampires. The film was controversial. It smacked the audience in the face. No one had really seen a movie like it. In his review for the film, Roger Ebert wrote, The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven, but try to remember. At that age, kids take the events on the screen seriously, and they identify fiercely with the hero. When the hero is killed, that's not an unhappy ending, but a tragic one. Nobody got out alive. It's just over. That's all. Night of the Living Dead was called Pornographically Violent. It was one of several movies from 1968 that led to the creation of the rating system we know today. The thing packed a punch. But what do Romero zombies mean? Like, we've established that Romero zombies come out of the political context of the 1960s. We've established that they reflect the violence and chaos and societal decay everyone was witnessing all around them at that time. We've established that it used the building blocks of Matheson's polio-inspired nuclear-age dystopia. But what does this potent cocktail end up meaning? Romero zombies are a bit of a middle ground between supernatural and material. They just happen with very little explanation, 
They are the emergence of something repressed in society. Well, actually, they might not even be the return of the repressed. Film theorist Steven Shaviro denotes an entire chapter to Romero zombies in his book, Cinematic Bodies. It is, to my knowledge, the most famous chapter of the book, where Shaviro argues that Romero zombies are something new. They are the postmodern monster. Shaviro writes... The zombies do not, in the familiar manner of 1950s horror film monsters, stand for a threat to social order from without. Rather, they resonate with and refigure the very processes that produce and enforce social order. That is to say, they do not mirror or represent social forces. They are directly animated and possessed by such forces. They can be regarded as monstrous symptoms of a violent, manipulative, exploitative society and as potential remedies for its ills. All this by virtue of their apocalyptically destructive, yet oddly innocuous, counterviolence. See, zombies aren't a one-to-one -one allegory or metaphor. They have completely lost the referent that began the idea here. Haiti has been forgotten, the colonial history has been forgotten, the reason these zombies are coming back is gone. No voodoo priests, no Nazi scientists. They just are. They are dead things walking around and taking on a society's muscle memory. They aren't rational thinking things. They have brains but no minds. The magic that animates these postmodern zombies is the society that produced them with all the learned behaviors and compulsions that come along with it. In Night of the Living Dead, the decaying aspect of society we see is the family unit. We have brothers and sisters squabbling in the beginning, and we have a family filled with all sorts of anxieties and dysfunctions and repressed violence. This repressed violence comes out pretty quickly once one of them gets turned into a zombie. See, zombies are a product of a system, but they also rebel against that system. Shaviro writes, Capitalist expropriation involves a putting to death and a subsequent extraction of movement and value, or simulated life, from the bowels of that death. Our society endeavors to transform death into value, but the zombies enact a radical refusal and destruction of value. They come after, and in response to, the capitalist logic of production and transformation. Zombies are dead. They are death. And death cannot be tamed. Capitalism cannot put death under its control and strip it for its market value. This is the biggest rupture between the modern zombies of the white zombie era and Romero's postmodern zombies. These zombies cannot be turned into laborers or armies. They are the impulses and desires and, yes, the death that capitalism has produced but can't actually deal with. It's the contradiction at the center of it all, expressed in an allegory that is itself contradictory. Maybe all of this feels a little far-fetched when talking about Night of the Living Dead, and that's because it kind of is. Romero didn't understand how political his first film was until he was driving to meet with a distributor and heard news of MLK's assassination on the radio. That was the moment he realized that the ending reflected and criticized the racist society that he lived in. 
He took on this political prophetic role confidently, and by the time he released his, we're not talking about the crazies, second zombie movie, Dawn of the Dead, he was no longer being subtle about it. The film starts with a panicked television station, unsure how to deal with and report on the events unfolding before them. It then also starts with a SWAT team invading a lower class neighborhood to find zombies and also just to be racist. This is the first 15 minutes of the film, and it communicates that, yes, we are in a political movie this time. Nothing hidden here. Eventually, our main protagonists end up in a shopping mall where the zombies wander around as literally mindless consumers. Once the zombie threat is taken care of, the main protagonists wander around the shopping mall like mindless consumers. They're the same. It's not subtle at all. According to Shaviro, this is when the zombies become properly postmodern. They're no longer any repressed aspect of society like the family tensions in Night of the Living Dead. They are outward expressions of the kind of people that our consumer society produces. It's the pure muscle memory of capitalism. This film, more than Night of the Living Dead, properly establishes the idea of a zombie apocalypse. This is a movie about the end of the world brought about by zombies, but also an end that we are ambivalent about. Like, yes, the world ending sucks, but also the, the world sucked. The way we organized the world was terrible. So we kind of relish in watching it all collapse. A zombie horde is perversely democratic. No zombie is king of the zombies. They're communal in a weird sort of way. Shviro writes, The zombies mark the dead end or zero degree of capitalism's logic of endless consumption and ever-expanding accumulation, precisely because they embody this logic so literally and to such excess. But why fantasize about the end of the world? Why get this weird sense of schadenfreude and democratic fulfillment from humanity's destruction? Why not fantasize about things getting better? I'm setting up a quote here that a good chunk of you have probably been screaming at the screen since we started this section. It's attributed to Frederick Jameson and also Slavoj Žižek, and it is the thesis statement of Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism. It goes like this. If you know the words sing along at home, it's easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. Buried in so much of our big apocalyptic fiction is a little bit of pleasure mixed with the horror. A part of us likes seeing this world end because we struggle to imagine a better world. We like to be haunted by those images just a little bit. This image right here is from Lucio Fulci's unauthorized sequel to Dawn of the Dead, Zombie Flesh Eaters. And it, it has such a strong feeling of this eminent end. Wait, wait, how did we get to Italy? Up until now, most of the zombie films I've been talking about have been placed squarely in the Anglophone. All of them, except for one I mentioned in passing, have been American films. 
The zombie obsession just didn't really strike Italy in those early days. In fact, Italy was a bit late to the horror game overall. It didn't really start until the 1950s. And by the 1960s and early 70s, horror was mostly focused on gothic-style horror and giallos. However, Italy did have a unique knack for sex and violence that would make Italian horror particularly notorious, and by the 1980s, the list of films censored by the British government, the Video Nasty list, it was 40% Italian. Italy churned out a lot of shocking, violent exploitation films as the taste for horror grew internationally. Independent distributors released European horror films in drive-ins and grindhouses in the U.S., while Europe itself consumed a lot of American horror, creating a sort of weird feedback loop. While Night of the Living Dead did pretty well internationally, being the top-grossing film in Europe in 1969, what really brought the zombie craze to Italy was the release of Dawn of the Dead, which had a special Italian edit done by the king of Italian horror himself, Dario Argento, featuring a nice, classic, synthy goblin score. The film was released under the title Zombie, which opened it right up for an explosion of unauthorized sequels. But why did Zombie resonate so much in Italy while Night of the Living Dead, still really successful, didn't seem to grab the zeitgeist? As I've been saying up until now, Dawn of the Dead was the first one to hit all the right notes to form a proper zombie apocalypse. Not just a zombie film, but an apocalypse film. A film that observes the sudden collapse of society due to mass violence. This was important to the film's success in Italy. This was 1978 one of the worst years in the years of lead. Now, this is another massive historical topic that I'm not remotely qualified to cover, but the short version is that the protests of the 1960s that were happening everywhere eventually turned into a violent conflict between communists and fascists in Italy. There were a lot of bombings and brutal terrorist acts throughout the 70s and 80s. Even the left and the right became divided among themselves and were fighting and denouncing each other. It was a horrible time. Zombie hit Italy in the middle of this when society literally felt like it was falling apart for the average Italian. In fact, it was released the same year that the prime minister was kidnapped and eventually assassinated by communists who were pissed at the other communists and would go watch a different video about the years of lead before I reveal any more of my ignorance here. In 1979, yes, that's right, only a year later, the actual king of Italian horror, Lucio Fulci, released Zombie 2, or Zombie Flesh Eaters, or just Fulci Zombie, which is what I usually call it. It was a success. In fact, it was a bigger success in Italy than Dawn of the Dead the previous year. Now, cards on the table. This is probably my favorite zombie movie, do I think it's the perfect platonic form of the zombie genre? No. But I am just a massive fan of Lucio Fulci, in part because when I first saw Zombie, I'd been studying Haiti and I'd even written part of my undergrad capstone paper on the meaning of zombies in relation to Haiti, the revolution and the American occupation. Night and Dawn were both beloved movies to me, and I had an appreciation for white zombie in light of my academic interests. A part of me really wanted a movie that dealt with the colonial side of the original zombie myth, but still in the nasty, cool, postmodern style of Romero. 
I'd heard good things about this Fulci guy, and I fell in love. Fulci is usually held alongside Herschel Gordon Lewis as one of the godfathers of gore. But while Lewis was a pure marketing guy that just knew the teens of the day wanted some bloody movies with pig guts in them or whatever, Fulci was a gore artist. And the sudden interest in zombies in Italy was the exact excuse he needed to start producing strange, dreamy gore movies. Before Zombie, Fulci was mostly doing giallos, which were still really fantastic films. Don't Torture a Duckling is one of my favorite films of all time, but but that's a different video. But those giallos didn't quite have the same level of surrealist gore that Zombie had. Zombie takes place on a unnamed Caribbean island that's, well, it's Haiti. It's totally Haiti. Big chunks of the film were literally filmed in Santo Domingo. A British scientist lives on this island that's totally Haiti, with his wife researching the concept of reanimation when zombies start to climb out from conquistador-era graves. Yes, we get gory, nasty, colonial zombies. We're back. And it concludes with the zombies eventually marching to New York to bring about apocalyptic havoc. It rules. It was one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite films as a child, in part because of the scene I've played several times already in this video where a zombie fights a shark. One of my favorite movies of all times. I remember the first time I saw Zombie. It was in a gigantic movie palace in Mexico. And I saw it and my mind exploded. I was alone. It was a movie that after the, the movie ended, I didn't know if I had dreamed it. And I was telling my friends at school and my family, I saw this movie in Mexico. And they were like, no, no, you're making this up. It has crazy, gross eyeball stuff and a fucking incredible soundtrack. It's a film I fell in love with almost instantly. So it brings me no pleasure to say, I think the movie might be racist. In her essay, Zombies and the Post-Colonial Italian Unconscious, Simone Brioni looks at zombie in light of the colonial interpretation that we talked about at the beginning of the video and adds some additional historical context. While the years of lead certainly explained part of why zombie films resonated with Italians, there was something else happening in Europe, other fears that zombie movies were tapping into, and the biggest one was probably immigration. Brioni starts off by noting that all of Fulci's zombies are dark-skinned, well, sure, that could be an accident of just the makeup design, but let's hear her out. Zombie begins then with a ghost ship arriving in New York with a zombie on board. We're then transported to the island where the ship originated, a place filled with the vestiges of a colonial past. The white researcher eventually loses control of the island as the dead spring from the ground, and we get the final shot where the zombies descend on New York, beginning their invasion. Now this lines up with historical trends. In 1972, net immigration to Italy surpassed net emigration out of Italy, and xenophobia was on the rise. It's also notable that 1973 was the year that the French novel The Camp of the Saints was published. If you're not familiar, this is a pretty notorious dystopian novel about France being overrun by tides of immigrants who are framed as invaders, destroying the white western way of life, growing exponentially in number by having too many kids, and basically just devouring everything. 
In the book's epilogue, it's revealed that the author is writing from Switzerland, which is the last nation not to open its borders. And the book is being written a few hours before the borders are about to be opened, and the horde of migrants is about to storm the city, and this sounds an awful lot like a zombie story. You wouldn't have to do a ton of editing to make the Camp of the Saints into a zombie apocalypse movie. So this xenophobic fear was in the air when Zombie was released and continued to be in the air for, well, the Camp of the Saints returned to the bestseller list in 2011 and is a big favorite of Steve Bannon, Marine Le Pen, Victor Orban, just a bunch of right-wing figures. The modern-day argument about immigration really goes back to the 1970s here and honestly even before that. So in her essay... Brioni compares some Italian anti-immigration posters from the 90s with the imagery used in Zombie a decade or two earlier, and I can't really unsee it. On top of that, the line between Italian zombie movies and Italian cannibal movies really starts to blur by the 80s, and cannibal movies are pretty explicitly racist. Almost all of them are about naive white idealists that believe that the natives of insert third world region here are actually nice, but it turns out they're cannibals and all the stereotypes about them are true. Almost all of these films are about how cruel and brutal nature is and isn't it great that Westerners have developed this civilization stuff to get us away from nature? They often splice pretty brutal and upsetting imagery into the film in order to convey this message, like an actual animal actually being killed by another animal. If this doesn't sound explicitly racist enough for you, one of the big influences on the cannibal films were also Mondo films, which were shocking documentaries that included footage of real human death and real animal abuse to show you how real and brutal the world outside of civilization is, and in fact, one of the most notorious films to come out of this genre was Africa Audio, a 1966 documentary about the end of colonization in Africa that showed shocking and awful footage to tell audiences that, hey, maybe they did need those Europeans around after all. So, no, I don't think a racist reading of Zombie is that much of a stretch. I mean, this was all in the air and all influencing Italian horror. In fact... Zombie seems to, in part, represent the repressed colonial history of Europe coming back to haunt it. The arrival of immigrants from nations that were historically screwed by Europeans reminds Europeans of their history. The arrival of Ethiopian immigrants in Italy reminds Italians of the invasion of Ethiopia in World War II. The arrival of Indian immigrants in Britain reminds Brits of their colonial past, Algerians in France, etc., etc., it brings back memories of past atrocities. It also brings back memories of the end of colonization, the slow death of these European empires, a death that many in Europe were and are still processing. If the original conception of a zombie represents an exploited, colonized, or dehumanized person, then Fulci's zombie represents the post-colonial person, arriving as a migrant, as a terrifying reminder of empires that fell, and the atrocities that were committed to build those empires, and also to try to save them. I don't think Fulci was doing this all intentionally. Fulci's main focus is making weird, dreamy, fucked-up nightmares with practical effects, and that's what he does best. 
you don't really go see a Vulture movie for the writing. You go to see a zombie fight a shark. And most of his zombie films after Zombie lose all of this colonial stuff and start plugging zombies into more supernatural horror films like The Beyond or City of the Living Dead, where zombies arrive because a gate to hell has been opened and they're accompanied by all sorts of other insane and weird stuff. An American example of these kinds of zombies would be the Evil Dead movies. I'm not going to get into these because the zombies are more a product of cosmic, supernatural, or occult horror, and they would really just kind of deserve their own video. Uh, I guess comment below if you'd like me to eventually tackle that subject. Fulci's zombie was followed by an explosion of Italian zombie movies that started to blur together with cannibal movies in weird ways. 1980's Hell of the Living Dead, directed by the king of Italian hacks, Bruno Mattei, picks up the torch and continues with the colonial themes of zombie, while becoming more and more ridiculous. This is recognized as a pretty bad movie, but I love it. <laughs> the film begins when a chemical research facility in New Guinea, called Hope Center No. 1, has a chemical leak. Meanwhile, some eco-terrorists take hostages in Barcelona and demand the closure of the Hope Center, despite the government denying the facility's existence. They kill the eco-terrorists, but discover they've lost contact with the Hope Center. Unaware of the chemical leak and thinking the loss of contact meant more eco-terrorists, they deploy troops who arrive and meet some journalists who are investigating strange violent attacks on the locals, and hey, turns out it's zombies. Near the end, the journalist Rousseau becomes convinced that the chemical which caused the zombie outbreak was invented to try to keep the third world down by making them violently turn on each other. As the zombie outbreak spreads across the world, we see apocalyptic images of the UN in disarray and finally the arrival of zombies in a city park, somewhere presumably in the west. This film has the kind of confused politics that can only really be produced by a hack, but frankly, I think it's the best synthesis of Romero zombies and the classic colonial zombies. The outbreak is both the subjugation of colonized people and also the paradoxically egalitarian horde that destroys the system that caused it. That being said, this is an exploitation movie through and through. Like, they insert Mondo-style documentary footage of native tribespeople mostly as an excuse for the female protagonist to strip nude and put on some body paint in order to quote-unquote blend in with the tribe. Quick off-topic aside, but the first feature film about the COVID-19 pandemic was Charles Band's Corona Zombies, which was released about a month into the pandemic because, in a level of shamelessness that surpasses Matei by miles, Band just took Hell of the Living Dead, filmed a couple extra scenes, dubbed it all, and dumped it straight to streaming. Ah, cinema. Alongside the colonial themes in European zombie films was a fear of pollution, chemical waste, and environmental disaster. You can see this in Hell of the Living Dead with the chemical leak, but that film wasn't an outlier. You also have 1978's The Grapes of Death, made by French horror director Jean Roland, and 1974's Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which was a Spanish and Italian production directed by Jorge Gras. This is also where the crazies fits in. 
films with this theme fit in pretty nicely with the zombie formula. It's another example of exploitation. It's another example of capitalism or imperialism unleashing a force that eventually turns its own violence back on itself. Fulci eventually made a sequel to Zombie 2 in 1988 called Zombie 3, which is basically just a ripoff of Hell of the Living Dead, which gets confusing because Hell of the Living Dead tried to market itself as a sequel to Zombie 2, and also Bruno Mattei helped Fulci direct Zombie 3, and they both have the same screenwriter, Claudio Fragasso, who you might know as the guy who directed Troll 2. The plot of Zombie 3 is pretty much the same as Hell of the Living Dead. It's another chemical weapon, this time in the Philippines. Troops are called in, zombies happen. There's a radio DJ doing commentary about the outbreak throughout the movie, and at the end it turns out he's a zombie, which causes some weird questions about how the zombies in the film really work. And also, you may note, none of this really has any connection to Zombie 2, Fulci's original zombie movie. But that's Italian schlock for ya. Despite my dismissive tone right now, this is a really fun movie. I, I own it on Blu-ray. Uh, it also represents the way that exploitation films and Italian horror kind of just devolves into nonsense eventually. So after this, there's Zombie 4, or After Death directed by Claudio Fragasso again in 1989 and suddenly Voodoo is back in the series and then there's Zombie 5 from 1988 yes it came out a year before Zombie 4 it just got labeled Zombie 5 later directed by Joe D'Amato that's mostly about people getting killed by birds actually but a zombie shows up in the last 10 minutes and at this point we have clearly lost the plot now, not all of the zombie movies coming out of Europe were about colonialism or environmental issues. There's also a very different type of zombie that comes out of Spain during the 1970s. You could argue all day about whether or not these movies actually count as zombie movies, but a lot of source material I've used in this video has lumped them in with it, so I'm going to bring them up, and also I just think they're cool, so I quickly wanted to mention them. They are Amando de Osorio's Blind Dead series, starting with Tombs of the Dead in 1972. These films center around undead, resurrected members of the Knights Templar who appear as skeletal, hooded figures that usually prey upon women. Coming out of the context of 1970 Spain, it's not too hard to read these films. Spain had been under the fascist dictatorship of Franco since the 1930s, specifically a traditionalist Catholic-style dictatorship, and these are films about a medieval force being resurrected and oppressing women. Hmm. These films didn't have a huge cultural impact outside of probably influencing Peter Jackson's depiction of Ring Wraiths and Lord of the Rings. I, I haven't found exact evidence of that, but come on, look at them. Still, they're cool. I think you should watch them. Well, uh, I think that's Europe. Let's fly back to America and talk about the 80s. Oh, no. 
Okay, okay, let's get the cliches out of the way. The 1980s was a decade of decadence and bravado. It's a decade of hyper-individualism and materialism. It's the greed is good decade. It's the neoliberal takeover of the US and the UK. You know it. This all happened alongside huge advances in special effects, which brought the monsters and violence of horror films out of the shadows and into the light where you could see it in all its gooey, terrible glory. This is the golden age of practical effects, which we saw a lot of when we were talking about Italian horror. This is the golden age of muscular action heroes, big explosions, synthy soundtracks. It's, well, it's the 80s, a decade we never really stopped trying to recreate. In general, the genre of horror goes through a massive transformation during this time. In the late 70s and early 80s, we get a bunch of absolutely genre-defining films. This is the birth of the slasher, for instance. And everyone tried to dive in and make copies of these successful films, increasing the blood and boldness until the genre began to turn in on itself and become parody. With zombies, this was something of a battle between two different directions to take the genre. Essentially, it was John Rousseau, versus George Romero. A little backstory. Rousseau worked with Romero on Night of the Living Dead. Now, through some sloppy decisions made by the distributors, Night of the Living Dead ended up in the public domain. When the two decided to write a sequel together, it became pretty clear that they had two very different ideas of where to go with the whole thing. And since they both wrote the movie and there was no copyright on the movie, they both had a claim on the future of the franchise. So they came to an agreement. Romero would use Of the Dead for his movies, and Rousseau got to use Living Dead. So the official sequels by Romero would be Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, etc., etc., as Rousseau would make his own series, Return of the Living Dead, parts one, two, three, etc. So what's the difference? Well, Romero is definitely satirical, but Dawn of the Dead isn't, like, laugh-out-loud funny. There's some dark humor here and there, the whole mall setup is kind of funny, but Romero's films just aren't comedies. Rousseau wanted them to be comedies. However, you may notice that Rousseau's name doesn't show up as a screenwriting or directing credit. That's because he originally wrote Return of the Living Dead as a novel and then sold the rights to get it made into a film. It got tossed around a lot. Hemdale Film Corporation had some trouble getting the money and wrangling a director for the project. It was originally going to be directed by Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame, which is a wild alternate reality. But it eventually got passed on to Dan O'Bannon, the screenwriter for Alien. Now. All this stalling means that this new Return of the Living Dead franchise didn't get kicked off until 1985. This is also the same year that Romero's third zombie movie, Day of the Dead, was released. It was a battle at the box office, so, so who won? Romero or Rousseau? Rousseau won. 1985 is, I think, a bit of a turning point for horror and for zombies especially. While the first half of the 80s was still campy, a lot of the in-your-face practical effects were being used to horrify you. As horror started to lean into self-parody, goofiness, more formulaic remakes of previous successes, the blood-and-guts-type violence ended up being more of a form of slapstick. 
So while the politics of the Romero zombie movies was front and center, the victory of camp meant politics kind of taking a backseat to entertainment value, which means these are usually pretty fun movies to watch, but they don't always have the most coherent politics. So to get ourselves in the headspace of 1985, let's start with the more explicitly political one. Day of the Dead. The last gasp of the original Romero zombie that eventually lost to 80s camp. In fact, Romero wanted this one to be his magnum opus. It had a massive budget and was aiming for new heights. It was his personal favorite, which makes it all the more sad that it absolutely failed in theaters. Luckily, it did pretty well in the new home video market, and by now it's recognized as a great film in its own right. Day picks up in the middle of the zombie apocalypse that we've seen unfold throughout the trilogy. This time, we're placed within an underground bunker filled with scientists and soldiers. This is the last vestige of society. Even money is meaningless. As our good friend from earlier, Shaviro, notes, all that remains of postmodern society is the military scientific complex, its chief mechanism for producing power and knowledge. But it all feels pointless now, in front of a horde that it can't control. The scientists are pointlessly trying to figure out what's causing the zombies. The soldiers are walking around, asserting an authority that doesn't really mean anything anymore, and mostly just putting everyone in danger. It's a claustrophobic movie. Zombies clamor from outside. There is no escape. All the exits are blocked by the horde. One of the researchers is able to turn a zombie into a soldier in a nice gesture to older iterations of zombies. But it's all moving toward an eventual end that we can see from the very beginning. One of the scientists, along with the helicopter pilot and the radio operator, escapes to a tropical island where they'll wait for death and safety, while one of the soldiers lets the zombies in, unleashing the inevitable on the rest of our characters. The zombie soldier hunts down the captain with a gun and salutes him as he's devoured. Shaviro writes this. If the zombies are a repressed byproduct of dominant American culture in night and that culture's simulacral double in dawn, then in day they finally emerge, ironically enough, as its animating source, its revolutionary avenger, and its sole hope of renewal. They are the long-accumulated stock of energy and desire upon which our militarized and technocratic culture vampiristically feeds, which it compulsively manipulates and exploits, but cannot forever hope to control. It's a great, albeit bleak, ending to a great, albeit bleak, trilogy. However, it just wasn't the kind of movie that audiences wanted at the time. Romero's zombies were depressing and they had grown stale to audiences who wanted a little more goofiness, a little more bravado, a little more... Return of the Living Dead begins by explaining its relation to Night of the Living Dead. It introduces the alternate timeline off the bat by saying, in the universe of this film, Romero exists, and he based his film on real-life events. But the military would only allow it if he didn't give an explanation for the zombies. This is kind of interesting because Romero's movies are the ones that feel a lot more real as we understand it. They think a lot about the politics of a zombie outbreak and how it would all play out. 
the Living Dead movies, they're the goofy ones. They're the comedies. There's sort of a funny implication here that reality is actually stupider than the movies. That the institutions and individuals in America might be more farcical and ridiculous than even a satire like Day of the Dead could capture. In Return of the Living Dead, the zombies are happening from a chemical created by the military called Trioxin. It ended up in a medical supply warehouse because of a shipping error, and the foreman of the warehouse ends up releasing the chemical by hitting the side of the barrel to prove to the new employee that the barrel is secure. This reanimates a corpse who they try to kill by stabbing in the head, but these aren't Romero zombies and it doesn't die. They incinerate the zombie, which releases the trioxin into the atmosphere and creates toxic rain. Incompetence is at every level of this film. The majority of the film follows a group of cool punks who go and dance around in a graveyard that has now been exposed to the toxic rain, and you're not even going to believe this, the dead begin to walk around. The military decides to deal with the situation by dropping a small nuclear bomb on the graveyard, ironically, on the 4th of July, which kills all of the survivors. Trioxin of course, isn't destroyed with the explosion, and it just creates more toxic rain. Now, this lines up with a renewed fear of nuclear weapons, environmental catastrophe, toxic waste, and acid rain that was all really present in the 80s. In fact, during the Reagan administration, two documentaries about nuclear weapons and acid rain made in Canada were banned in the United States. The use of punk aesthetics with the young victims kind of lines up with a general cultural battle that was taking place. Two years after this film, Jello Biafra from the punk band Dead Kennedys would be dragged to court over an offensive album art, and he would reference this exact situation in an interview. That's, the, that's what good art is. It's art that inspires people to think, even if they don't like it. I mean, the argument the prosecutor made today was that because this album and the visual art didn't have a happy ending it therefore was legally liable what happens to platoon the film what happens to full metal jacket or apocalypse now what happens to the documentary on acid rain made in canada that the reagan administration has forbidden to be shown in america the it's hard to exaggerate the influence return of the living dead had on the genre like this is the movie where the idea of zombies eating brains comes from. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. Brains only. Yeah. Now, while the first film did have a bit of a political edge to it, Return of the Living Dead Part 2, released in 1988, would lean a bit more into general 80s film cliches. After the success of films like Poltergeist and Gremlins, a market for family-friendly horror was growing. Because of this, Part 2 tried to be a family-friendly zombie movie. This gives the movie kind of a weird tone where it's even goofier and it mostly follows a kid protagonist who learns to stand up to his bullies. But also it's got some nasty gore and is kind of a weird follow-up to a movie that's most iconic seen as a woman dancing naked on a grave. 1985 was also the year that Reanimator was released, which follows more of the Frankenstein style of zombie that arguably isn't really a zombie, but it's a Lovecraftian classic and definitely influenced the genre. 
It's distinctly a mad scientist film, which links the general theme of all these movies. A feeling that science and technology might be going too far in light of environmental harm and nuclear weapons, all of which the Reagan administration seemed to be perpetuating. Now, the shift toward camp also makes the films of the late 80s more metatextual. When genre films embraced being genre and embraced the artifice and stylized look of genre, they became a little less about anything real and a little more about genre itself. For instance, Return of the Living Dead, although having some pretty explicit politics, also starts out by acknowledging previous zombie movies and subverting the expectations of those movies. 1987's The Video Dead is about zombies climbing out of a campy zombie movie on TV and invading the real world. It's about home video, about the way that violent and sexual images were invading the home with the arrival of VHS tapes, about the conservative fear that this content will create violent and hypersexual individuals. In 1986, the Reagan administration released the Mies Report, a report on the impact of pornography on society. In 1989, James Dobson would interview Ted Bundy, who claimed from prison that porn and horror movies made him do the whole serial killing thing. Now, does the video dead do a good job of commenting on all this? No. It's mostly people running around in the woods trying to find the zombies who climbed out of the TV. It, it sucks. If you want a movie about this subject, Cronenberg's Videodrome is the film you should watch. By the end of the 80s, the fear of nuclear annihilation began to slow down with the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union, and the whole goofy genre thing was running out of steam. People just kind of got exhausted by zombies, after a solid decade of them saturating theaters and even music videos. The sentiments of the 80s gave way to the sentiments of the 90s. It was the end of history. Nothing happened in the end of history. There weren't any good zombie movies in the 90s. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But generally, the zombie obsession did die out, with a few exceptions. One being Peter Jackson's Brain Dead or Dead Alive, which is the goriest zombie comedy in the world. But in a lot of ways, it feels like an 80s film that came out a few years too late. This isn't an insult to the movie, though. It's a blast. With the loss of the more political zombies, because remember history is over or something, the films became a little more focused on the interpersonal. So Return of the Living Dead Part 3 follows a teen boy resurrecting his dead girlfriend with trioxin, which becomes some strange body horror. And the Italian film Cemetery Man similarly follows a cemetery caretaker who falls in love with a zombie. It's an interesting movie, but probably deserves a different video to give it justice. Ultimately, these few exceptions didn't do much to revive the genre. The zombie films that were coming out in the 90s were often continuations of old franchises or remakes of old classics. Coming to get you, Barbara. The horror revival of the late 90s kicked off by Scream that embraced the metatextual elements and tried to use the self-parody as a style of storytelling just didn't seem to really work with zombies, at least in the 90s. Perhaps in part because they always were a bit satirical and self-aware? It's hard to say. 
But while zombies weren't a huge deal in the West, they began to take root in the East. Now, it's not that zombie movies were completely absent from the Far East up until this point. In 1981, there was the attempted genre mashup out of Hong Kong, Kung Fu Zombie, which is exactly what it sounds like. And there was also a tradition of films coming out of Hong Kong about Jiang Shi, or hopping vampires, which had some overlap with zombies. The concept of the undead wasn't novel or anything. However, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a distinct burst of zombie media. In Hong Kong, there was the 1998 comedy film Bio-Zombie, which was a bit of a satire of Dawn of the Dead, influenced a bit by Peter Jackson's Brain Dead. And in 2000, Bio-Cops, which I couldn't find, but at least according to IMDb, is about a CIA agent fighting zombies. So I think it's also kind of a parody of American films. Hong Kong was playing with the genre, but the real burst of zombie media that would impact the genre internationally, and note that I am saying media, not films, was in Japan. At this point, we get films like 1992's Living Dead in Tokyo Bay, 1999's Wild Zero, 2000's Versus, and 2001's Stacy. There's an interest in zombies returning, but what really brings about a global revival is video games. Now, if I were to delve too deeply into specific zombie video games from the past few decades, this already too long video would become even longer. So I am going to remain mostly focused on film, but we still need to look at what impact video games had on zombies because it, it was huge. The video game industry in Japan got going in the 1980s. Yes, I'm skipping over some history here, video game nerds. But eventually it brought about the video game console, allowing people to play video games at home, alone. By the end of the decade, we have such titles as Super Mario Bros. and Donkey Kong, stuff I'm sure you're familiar with. During this time, there was a handful of zombie video games coming out, but nothing with massive cultural impact. Now, the 1990s in Japan are the beginning of what's called the Lost Decade, which has lasted longer than a decade and is arguably still kind of going on. Beginning with a huge economic crash between 1989 and 1991, Japan went through a long period of stagnation, which led to a generation of young adults failing to launch into the thriving middle-class life that seemed possible in the 80s. A good chunk of young adults were forced to move back in with their parents, or sometimes just lived alone and isolated without much to do, working low-paying service jobs, unable to launch lifetime careers. By the end of the 90s, there was a general feeling of alienation and loneliness that you can see reflected in a lot of the Japanese horror from the time. For a little more on this, I really recommend the Worst of All Possible Worlds video on the film Pulse. So what's this movie about? It's about ghosts from the internet. When the world feels like it's crumbling and you feel cut off from everyone, maybe you're stuck living in your parents' basement, you can't seem to find a job or at least a good paying one, one of your only potential outlets is video games. The arrival of the console meant you could just lock yourself up and play Sonic all day. In this context, in the mid to late 90s, we get the arrival of two zombie franchises, The House of the Dead and Resident Evil. 
These were massively successful franchises on a global level, but I don't think they could be fully unplugged from their context. These survivalist stories where the world is a hostile, violent wreck and you're stuck fighting it off alone seems reflective of how things in the late 90s and early 2000s really seem to feel in Japan. Now, in contrast to Japan, America was in its end-of-history period, as I mentioned. The fear of nuclear apocalypse and World War III had subsided, although there was a lingering sense of dissatisfaction with the perfect world order we had supposedly achieved that you can see in a number of films from the 90s and the millennium. The only real enemies anymore were terrorists. It wasn't the fear of a world power declaring war on another world power. It was the fear that a few people, a few dissidents, might be able to unleash chemicals or build a bomb in their attempt to attack the final world order that we've achieved. In Japan, there was the 1995 Tokyo subway attack where a new religious movement and doomsday cult unleashed sarin gas and killed 12 people and injured thousands. 1995 was the same year as the Oklahoma City bombing, which was perpetrated by two white supremacists in the U.S. By the end of the 90s, there was a sense that a world order had been established, but that it might be fragile. That a few psychos might be able to unleash a disease or a series of bombings that could make it all cave in. In Japan, the cave in was already taking place. In the U.S., the cave-in hadn't started, but the prosperity all felt dissatisfying and pointless, and a lot of the media from the time was imagining it all collapsing. These fears kind of came true, or at least they felt like they came true, with the most distinctive act of terrorism in the past few decades, one that is burned into the head of anyone born before 2001 at least. That was 9-11. Now, I don't need to tell you what 9-11 is. You know what it is. But the years following 9-11 felt like the collapse of this prosperous world order. It gave the U.S. and the West, quotation marks here, a new narrative to replace the Cold War. Bush dropped his infamous phrase, the axis of evil, in a State of the Union address at the beginning of 2002, which lumped Iraq, Iran, and North Korea together as enemies we need to rally against. This is a heavily mocked phrase because it lumps three nations that don't really like each other into some sort of replacement for the Eastern Bloc. Nevertheless, neoconservatives, right-wing evangelicals, and supposedly liberal columnists all joined forces to declare a new existential struggle against terrorism. The new communism. History is back, baby. And so are zombie movies. In 2002, we get the British film 28 Days Later and the American film adaptation of Resident Evil. Of course, these movies weren't made with 9-11 in mind, but also 9-11 was the kind of disaster that a lot of people already had in mind. Resident Evil was originally going to be entitled Ground Zero, but changed that because of 9-11. 28 Days Later's apocalypse comes about as the result of terrorists freeing a chimpanzee in Cambridge, which is infected with the rage virus. 28 days after the disease is released to the general public, a bicycle courier wakes up from a coma to find London is basically empty. Here's our iconic apocalypse imagery, and also fast zombies. Now, here is where I run into two tedious conversations I've seen a lot online while researching this, and I just want to preempt them now. 
The first is people arguing about whether or not 28 Days Later zombies count as zombies because it's a disease and they weren't actually dead. And aside from that just being a boring surface level thing to obsess over with this movie, I think it's dumb because I have spent over an hour here going through zombie movies, and I'm sure you can see there is so much diversity in how these things have been presented over the years, I don't think 28 Days Later is really betraying what counts as a zombie because it violates Romero's rules from the 60s and 70s. I'm imagining some guy in 1978 right now watching Dawn of the Dead and being like, well, these don't count as zombies because there isn't a voodoo sorcerer controlling them. Like, obviously, this thing has changed a lot. The other tedious conversation here is whether or not 28 Days Later is the first movie to introduce fast zombies. People point to a handful of 80s movies that technically preempt it, but honestly, if we're talking about impact, this movie is the one that shocked everyone by breaking that convention and using it to make them scarier. Zombie media nowadays frequently has fast zombies. It's not considered a faux pas anymore, but before 28 Days Later, it was a rare thing that might happen in comedies or weird Italian films that weren't ever super invested in following zombie rules anyway. Now, 28 Days Later broke this rule at very much the right moment. The old zombie films had been boring to audiences for a decade or more, and so breaking some rules revitalized the whole genre. But more than that, I think images of running crowds kind of follows the general fear of terrorism that was bubbling up in the 90s and then became feral in the 2000s. 9-11 footage was played endlessly on TV, a thing I think genuinely damaged a lot of people's brains, and it's why I'm making a conscious effort not to play any of that footage right now. The images of 9-11 are kind of a media event, in the same way footage from Vietnam being played on televisions in the 60s and 70s was a catalyst for more violence in films. The image of a panicked crowd running toward the camera starts to show up a lot in movies after 9-11, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Zombie apocalypse movies always play a bit on the imagery of apocalypse from their era, and in the 2000s, the smoking towers and the panicked crowds were the apocalyptic image du jour. 28 Days Later was a surprise hit in the U.S., and I think that might be analogous to Dawn of the Dead being a huge success in Italy during the years of lead. Resident Evil was also a massive success. Now, in retrospect, 28 Days Later is recognized as the definitive classic of the two, but Resident Evil was the more successful one at the time, and this success also encouraged more people to play the games. Resident Evil is still a massive franchise. I'm not really even a big gamer, and I've become pretty familiar with these games because of watching video essays and media analysis stuff on YouTube. Hey, like you're doing right now. This is also why I'm a bit hesitant talking too much about the games. Uh, I just really haven't played them a ton, and there's already a lot of analysis out there of them that is going to do it better than I ever will. And I'm also not a huge fan of the films. But what I will say is that my opinion doesn't really matter here, because the impact can't be denied. This franchise inspired a whole new wave of zombie films. Edgar Wright cites Resident Evil 2, the game, as an inspiration for Shaun of the Dead. Um, we'll get back to that. Now, 
The zombie revival was solidified with Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake in 2004. This film tries to orient itself around the action genre more than pure horror, which is the influence of the Resident Evil movies. And it also uses fast zombies, which is the influence of 28 Days Later. This is also a distinctly post 9-11 movie, distinctly a war on terror film. It's filled with bravado and patriotism and Americans with guns who know how to use them. Huh? What'd I tell you, boy? America always sorts its shit out. It was a big hit in the box office. In fact, it pushed the passion of the Christ out of the number one spot. While it never overshadowed and will never overshadow the Romero film, it also brings together all the aspects that I think characterize the zombie revival. A focus on action tropes rather than horror tropes, an ongoing sense of chaos, and the returned focus on apocalyptic end-of-the-world imagery. Now, Shaun of the Dead, which came out the same year, was Edgar Wright's attempt at answering how British people would respond to the zombie apocalypse. See, we know Americans own guns and know how to use them. Americans, especially American males in the 2000s, were all kind of encouraged to be mentally preparing themselves to be soldiers or action heroes. You never know when the terrorists might strike, that kind of thing. This is contrasted with Wright's depiction of British stoners and pub guys who don't even realize a zombie apocalypse is happening because they're always changing the channel away from the news and the only idea they can come up with about how to escape the apocalypse is go to the pub. What's interesting about revivalist zombie comedies is that unlike Return of the Living Dead, the zombies aren't goofy, not really. Rather than the comedy coming from this ensemble of silly characters and silly villains, the humor in these revivalist comedies comes from the tonal whiplash. It's a very real, very upsetting apocalypse, and then there's these doofuses trying to navigate it. Ruben Fleischer's 2009 film Zombieland brings Edgar Wright's formula back to the States, and of course, Americans shoot guns. Americans fucking love guns. And Twinkies. And movie stars. Bill Murray, you're a zombie? This was an interesting era for zombie movies. By the end of the 2000s, there are a handful of unique takes on the format. The 2007 Spanish zombie film Wreck uses the found footage style and a claustrophobic setting with running zombies and the fear of being on the wrong side of the state's cold utilitarian logic to make a masterpiece, in my opinion. I know the found footage genre has been overdone a lot, but it just works really well in this one, and also in its 2009 sequel. Together, the films also have a lot of fun with the ambiguity between whether this has a material explanation or if it's the product of malevolent spiritual entities. The film resulted in the 2008 American, do I want to call it ripoff, film Quarantine. In the same year, the Canadian film Pontypool was released, which also shares the sort of claustrophobic style, but introduces a difficult-to-explain notion where people can become infected by words and phrases. I think this might have an interesting reading in light of the War on Terror era and fears about mass hysteria, but I'm going to gloss over that for this video because this thing is already way too long. We even get in 2007 the return of our 60s vampire zombies with I Am Legend, another adaptation of Richard Matheson's novel. 
Now, just when the world really felt like it was falling apart in the U.S. from terrorism and war, and as the country was approaching the end of the Bush administration, even more gasoline was poured on the fire when the housing market crashed, triggering a global financial crisis, the Great Recession. Now, the culture in the U.S. found itself in a similar position to the lost decade in Japan, albeit with some incredibly significant differences. Nevertheless, the parallel between the lost generation in Japan, the college graduates who were unable to get hired and never got into careers, and the college graduate with no future that became the archetype of the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, seemed to share some similarities. The future's been canceled. A middle-class life is becoming less and less attainable, and a good chunk of the population is in debt for a college degree that ended up worthless, making stupid YouTube videos about zombies. Um, the world outside is hostile. The political structures and economic structures that exist have failed, and now what? What do we have? I think it's notable that the influence of the Western begins to show itself around this point. The return of the neo-Western had been happening for kind of a while, but I think the recession kind of accelerated it. Shows like Breaking Bad, which were incredibly successful, took a lot of notes from the Western, and although they only fall into that genre in the loosest sense, they seem to be a uniquely American way to process the collapse of institutions. We return to the myth of the frontiersmen and the early settlers, the outlaws and sheriffs, all trying to create new structures in a seemingly lawless setting. With Breaking Bad, this is the failure of the American healthcare system and someone entering this lawless setting to afford cancer treatment. In 2010, the first episode of The Walking Dead airs. Now, I would have to do a whole other video to get into The Walking Dead in its entirety, but I think it's fair to say this. It takes a lot of influence from Westerns. It is the lawless zombie apocalypse, and we follow a sheriff trying to form a sort of community or social institution. This is the question that's starting to form in zombie media during the revival era. This isn't all zombie media, but a lot of it begins with the apocalypse already kind of underway, and it's going, well, now what? What kind of new society are we building? There's a lot more to the show than that, but it's a long show, and like I said, it would just need a whole massive video on its own. I think The Walking Dead is what a lot of people nowadays picture when they imagine the zombie apocalypse, and with it, the zombie apocalypse plays this role as a sort of blank slate where we ask, what kind of world could be built on the ashes of the old? In fact, if we take Mark Fisher seriously, who I referenced earlier, we might say that since it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, the zombie apocalypse is one of the few ways people can begin imagining a future because it's set after the end of the world in a sense we're all kind of waiting for the apocalypse and then once it happens then we'll build a better world now i'm saying all this in reference to a show that was really getting going in the early 2010s but i don't think this sentiment i'm describing is gone it's changed a bit and evolved with new political events, but on the whole, I think there is a general anticipation for the end of the world right now. Not giddy excitement or anything, but just the expectation that the end is around the corner. 
The problem with the zombie apocalypse as an allegory, though, is that it's all predicated on a huge, massive collapse, an overnight destruction of every institution, and hell, maybe that is coming. But I think what's more likely is a slow collapse, because that's usually how it happens throughout history. There's not going to be a single moment when you look at your phone and get the news notification, hello, society is over, time to build the new world. Although there were a few moments that felt that way. Of course, in 2016, Donald Trump was elected president, an unthinkable thing to liberals in America. And while there was a lot of embarrassing, cringy hysteria around the event, it was an event that signaled that our institutions might be compromised and that far-right movements were growing. In 2020, we witnessed two of these, oh my God, is this it moments, the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests of that summer. Since 2020, the feeling that we are living right at the end of the chapter seems ever more present. And yet, these notifications we get on our phones just kind of become the background hum of everyday life, increasingly more alienated and lonely and individual. And the zombie media from the last decade has reflected on these apocalyptic feeling moments. 2016's Train to Busan, which is one of the best zombie films to come out of the last decade, explicitly deals with class and selflessness and rewards characters for helping each other. It seems a gesture toward imagining a future beyond the individualist survivalist impulse that's buried in a lot of American apocalypse films. The Night Eats the World, a 2018 French film, focuses intensely on loneliness and feeling trapped in your own interior world with a hostile and broken one outside. Overlord, which was released a year after Charlottesville, focuses specifically on Nazi zombies. Although this is kind of pulling from a long tradition that I haven't been focusing on too much in this video, there were a handful of Nazi zombie movies in the 70s and 80s and of course in video games. Nevertheless, I think after 2017 and the real rise of press attention given to actual Nazis, there was a deeper sense that the apocalypse might happen because of the far right and also the presence of real Nazis made Nazis getting punched or killed a lot more fun to watch. In 2019, the Canadian film Blood Quantum looked at the zombie apocalypse through an indigenous and anti-colonial perspective, comparing the zombie siege with the raids led by the Quebec Provincial Police on a First Nations reserve in 1981. Now, in general, I think we're approaching the end of this zombie revival. Of course, this year, The Last of Us, an HBO adaptation of the popular video game by the same name, has been incredibly popular. Much like The Walking Dead, its focus is on the abrupt end of the world and the questions that come after the end, fitting in nicely with a lot of the themes of revival zombie films. Nevertheless, it feels like the oversaturation of zombie media in the last decade is encouraging a bit of a burnout. I might be wrong, and the COVID-19 pandemic could very much have been the event that keeps zombie apocalypses on everyone's mind, but I think in the next few years, there'll be a shift away from zombies for a while. But as I think this video has shown, the genre has been remarkably adaptable and always available for revival.
There are so many other zombie movies that I didn't even mention in here. I did my best, but it is a huge genre, and the last two decades especially have seen a huge explosion of zombie movies. I, I inevitably missed some, a lot, whatever. Zooming all the way back out, I think you can break the zombie genre down into three eras broadly. One, the modern zombie. These are the zombies before Romero. They're focused on a sorcerer or a mad scientist who finds a way to control an individual or small army of individuals. These are metaphors for colonization and totalitarianism. Two, the postmodern zombie. These are Romero zombies and then Rousseau zombies later. These don't have an evil person directly responsible. These zombies are more fuzzy on their explanation. There's no sorcerer or mad scientist, usually, with a few exceptions. These are focused on societal forces, usually. The Romero zombie that's motivated by consumerism, the Rousseau zombie brought about by the incompetence of the military, etc. Three, the revivalist zombie. These zombies have fuzzy explanations like the postmodern zombie, but they're usually being used as a backdrop to represent the collapse of society from terrorism, pandemics, etc. Their behavior is a little more unpredictable, and because of the influence of video games, really serve as an easy and morally unambiguous target for violence in all its fun forms. You don't need to be thinking, oh, wow, our protagonist is killing a lot of people if the people are zombies. Now, these three categories, these three eras are really broad, and you will see older forms of zombies pop up during different eras. Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow came out in the middle of the postmodern zombie boom, but was distinctly a modern zombie film with all its voodoo and references to Haiti. And yeah, the line between the postmodern and revivalist zombies is a bit fine. Although I think if you watch enough films from each era, you can see the distinction I'm talking about here. It's slight, but it's there. When we're asking what a zombie means then, I think one of the hardest things to parse through is whether or not we're sympathetic to the zombies. In the case of modern zombies, Zombies are very much the victim, and we cheer on their liberation. With the postmodern zombies, it's a bit ambiguous. As I discussed, they have that democratic impulse built in, and they're both emblematic of the problems and the solutions of contemporary society. In the revivalist zombie films, I think they become mostly unambiguously bad as they represent the collapse of society, although you do still see some of that democratic impulse, like the scene in Train to Busan where you end up kind of cheering on the zombies devouring the rich people that had been cowardly and refusing help to others throughout the movie. So, what does a zombie mean? Well, it means a lot of things. A zombie is a dehumanized person. A zombie is a fascist. Zombies are the mob. Zombies are the collapse of civilization. Zombies are democratic revenge. Zombies are police officers. Zombies are the military-industrial complex gone wrong. Zombies are epidemics. Zombies are pandemics. Sometimes you're kind of on the zombie's side. Other times a zombie represents everything wrong with the world. 
Zombies are a malleable metaphor with a long and contradictory tradition behind them. So next time you watch a zombie movie, ask yourself, when did this movie come out and what were people scared of at the time? And next time you're imagining how you would survive the zombie apocalypse, instead of thinking about how many weapons you need or how much canned food you need, ask yourself this, what should the world look like? Because if a part of you believes that the world could cave in tomorrow because of a zombie outbreak, then that means a part of you believes that the world can change and that it can change overnight. And you should never let that part of you die.